Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, Aaron O'Toole wants to change the Conservative Party. The Canadian border is still closed for some, but open for others. And what's with the anti-development agenda? The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome everyone to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Great to have you tuned into the program. Have you recovered from your conservative convention hangover yet? That is usually the question you'd have to ask people after a massive political convention. The same question goes to the Liberals next weekend normally, except this year if you have a major hangover from it, you might need to get some help as you were watching it from home alone as the convention, like so many other events, went virtual. And I should qualify that that's precisely why I didn't watch every single minute of the day. I generally speaking, when it comes to conventions and events and stuff like that, I like them because of the socialization, because of getting to catch up with people. A lot of conferences are like big old family reunions for people you haven't seen in in quite some time. So the idea of just staring at a screen for three days, I don't find to be particularly alluring, but I did make sure to tune in and out as the highlights were going on. I felt bad because I had a friend of mine who is a real diehard and he was like texting me updates and screenshots of all of these things happening throughout the convention. And he's like, do you want me to send you a Zoom link? And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm quite all right, but thank you anyway. The thing that I did watch, though, was Aaron O'Toole's speech, which was really the first of its kind for him to address conservatives since becoming the leader of the conservative party back in August. Yes, it's actually quite a while ago now. Aaron O'Toole has been the leader of the Conservatives for uh, just over 200 days. And in that time, he's not actually seen a honeymoon period, as is so often the case with new leaders. He hasn't seen a bump in the polls. In fact, he has very high unfavorables, which suggests that the people that do know who he is aren't necessarily thrilled. Now, I know that CBC is doing lots of hand-wringing about this and trying to basically spell out the death sentence to Aaron O'Toole's political career, but I should say that people in politics in Canada do not pay attention until the very end. So while it might not be the be-all and end-all, it is still something to keep in mind and something that, again, is certainly going to be relevant to conservatives. So the idea is that Aaron O'Toole had this opportunity to speak not just to conservatives, but to the country, his first big speech since taking over. And he spoke well. He's a good speaker. He's engaging. But there's a fair bit of dispute about some of the substantive points of his speech. One of the big ones is this one. The courage of Canadians has helped our country weather the storm of this last year. The courage of the nurses and doctors on our front lines. The courage of personal support workers who put their own health at risk to help our seniors. The courage of families caring for a loved one or comforting their children. The Conservative Party must show that we too have the courage to meet this extraordinary moment and change. We have lost Two elections in five and a half years. In that time, we've had four leaders. We must present new ideas, not make the same arguments, hoping that maybe this time more Canadians will come around 
to our position. Now, I must admit, I find the train of thought on this one to be a little bit difficult to follow. He seems to be saying that because nurses and doctors and other people have courage to go to their jobs during the pandemic, which is true, conservatives need to have the courage to change the way that they run in in campaigns. I, I don't quite see the connection there, but nevertheless, the question that is very easily raised after that is change in what way? Change in what way? How are the conservatives supposed to change in Aaron O'Toole's view? And what was interesting is that he was asked about that at a Q&A that took place the next day in which someone said, okay, you say we have to change. You didn't tell us what that change is going to be. So, Mr. O'Toole, what's that change going to be? We have to have the courage to change. That means we need to reach out and grow support. As I've said, I want more Canadians seeing a conservative stare in the mirror. If they're concerned about the debt I just talked about, if they're concerned about the unemployment and the crisis and the, and the mental health toll, the pandemic, if they're concerned that Canada's in 50th place or so in the vaccine rollout, 100 years ago this year, we discovered insulin and we're world leaders and have been in biosciences. And now we have to rely on other people and even take vaccines from a fund for developing countries because Mr. Trudeau didn't plan, didn't make sure we were ready. So we need, as part of our change, to reach out. But we also have to recognize we can't, we can't wage another election just hoping that people come to our point of view on certain issues. I want us to have a serious and comprehensive approach on climate change. That is not the tax approach of Mr. Trudeau that drives jobs away and hurts low-income families, but a plan that will get emissions down while we champion job growth across the country. We need to show that we can be more welcoming to people that haven't voted for us before. As I said, union members who maybe thought we, we had squabbles in the past, we're reaching out. We're reaching out to the LGBTQ community. Um, I've, I've always stood up. We've got passionate advocates in our caucus, like Eric Duncan, talking about the unfair blood ban. Um, we need to show that more Canadians can have their concerns, their worries, their values reflected in our party. So the takeaway from that seems to be we have to be welcoming and open and find new ways to reach out and communicate, but also one specific policy. In fact, there was only one specific policy that was named in that response about how and why the Conservative Party of Canada needs to change. And that was on climate change. And I'm going to talk about that for a few moments now, because here's what Aaron O'Toole said on this issue. There's been a lot of speculation about what I'm going to say about climate change in this speech. To those who are expecting a dramatic moment, I'm afraid you'll be disappointed. But I will say this, from the first days of my campaign to lead our party, I've said two things consistently. One, we all want a green future for our children. We cannot ignore the reality of climate change. The debate is over. And I will not allow 338 candidates to defend against the lie from the Liberals that we are a party of climate change deniers. We will have a plan to address climate change. It will be comprehensive. 
and it will be serious. <laughs> I, I have to go back to that first thing he said about there had been like, you know, a lot of speculation about it. I heard precisely zero speculation leading up to that speech about, oh, I wonder what Aaron O'Toole is going to say about climate change. Other people may have been asking the question. I wasn't. That's fine. But he says the debate is over. And oh, yes, it was. Fast forward to the very next morning after Aaron O'Toole said that, and the debate was over indeed. Conservative Party of Canada convention delegates vote against adding the line, climate change is real, and that the party is willing to act to the Conservative Party of Canada's official policy. Now, this was very easily looked at by the mainstream media as a rebuke of Aaron O'Toole. CBC was going crazy over it, the Toronto Star, etc. And understandably, the juxtaposition is one that is too rich to ignore. You have, on one hand, the conservative leader saying, yes, climate change is real. And on the next day, his members saying, eh, no, it isn't. And to be fair, voting against including that in party policy doesn't mean that the 54% of people who voted against it believe it is not real, but if so, or if not, they still don't believe that it's real strongly enough that they want that to become a plank in the party's policy book. Now, I'm going to get boring for just a moment here because the I, people that haven't been involved in this process don't necessarily know. The policy guide, and we talked about this last week on the show with Scott Hayward, it, it means different things to different people. In, in one hand, it's not anything that binds the leader of the party. He can make the platform whatever he wants, and certainly if the Conservatives form government, he can do whatever he wants. But at the same point, it is a reflection of the party membership. It's a reflection of the party's grassroots. In this case, that party being the Conservative Party of Canada. So when these votes happen, the votes on policy matter more than the policy itself, because in a lot of cases, policies are on the books that haven't really been reevaluated in quite some time. But here you have a very marked change. On one hand, yes, it's real. On the other hand, we don't want to make that party policy. And it brings to mind a line that my friend Mark Stein has said time and time again, which is that it is easier for the base to get itself a new elite than it is for the elite to get itself a new base. And what this means is that it's a lot easier for a membership or a base of a party to find a new leader than it is for a leader to try to remake or reshape the base. And there's a concern in what Aaron O'Toole was saying on the weekend that Aaron O'Toole is trying to fundamentally alter the makeup of the party, which just doesn't work. You can't do it, especially in a country like Canada, in which it's party members that determine who the leader is and not some open primary system. So Aaron O'Toole wants to say that he's the guy that is going to uh, break with tradition among conservatives. He's going to stand up for climate change. He's going to say it's real. He's going to tackle it, but not in the Justin Trudeau way. He's not going to do it through a carbon tax. Well, the problem is that most methods are taxes in different forms. And remember that a carbon tax is a tax on pollution, but it's a tax on industry. It's a tax on productivity. It's a tax on anything that has to be manufactured or shipped using hydrocarbons. So pretty much anything, not pretty much anything, absolutely anything and everything. When people talk about, oh, well, we're only going to go after large industrial emitters, which is something that I think most conservatives are, are more open to, you're still targeting industry. And you're still targeting industry in a way where that money has to be shouldered by someone. And plot twist, companies are not taking it out of their own bottom line. They are passing it on to consumers or making it back in some other way. 
So even plans that are against a carbon tax but supporting a carbon tax tend to support a carbon tax. I know, it sounds circular, right? So this is the problem with it. it, it when anyone talks about, well, you, we, we believe this is a big issue, but we don't want to go after it Justin Trudeau's way, you're still oftentimes seeding the ground. So I don't blame conservative members for saying we don't want to wrap our party around this. And to be fair to Aaron O'Toole, he, he said in his response that, you know, he also believes jobs are more important, that you can't have a clean and green future if no one is working. But I think the problem is that most conservatives, and I would say a lot of Canadians, view jumping whole hog into the climate change alarmism narrative as being antithetical to standing up for jobs. I mean, this is the whole conflict that we've seen throughout a lot of those great reset types where they just are, are thrilled at how great the pandemic's been for the environment. Oh yeah, people aren't driving to work, so the roads are clear, people are getting bicycles. I, I was reading a story just this morning, as a matter of fact, talking about the, the major surge in, in bicycles. Well, yeah, because people have more time on their hands given that they're not employed. So we should not be celebrating this. And that's the problem is that there are a lot of people that would absolutely write off the economy for the benefit or at least their perceived benefit of the environment. And that's why this has become such a sensitive issue. Now, Aaron O'Toole believes what he believes. And that's fine. I, my issue is not him believing what he believes. My issue is him trying to tell the party that he represents, that he leads what it believes and getting it wrong. That's, I guess there's no way to put it. He got it wrong. Now, Fred Delory, who I, I've known for many years, I've got a lot of respect for Fred. I like him. He is working on the conservative campaign. Fred Delory was trying to say to the media that the party didn't actually vote the way it voted on this. Fred said on Twitter, the conservative party policy document already has a section on climate change. And as Aaron O'Toole has said, the debate is over and we need a real plan that works, not Trudeau's carbon tax. And what the section actually says is something that I think is entirely valid. It says, quote, in order to have a strong economy and maintain good health, Canada must have strong, coordinated and achievable environmental policies. Nothing wrong with that at all. And in fact, that's a lot better than the one that was voted on this weekend that basically tries to pit uh, deniers versus alarmists with little room for nuance and also little understanding that environmental policy is a lot broader than just climate change. Global warming is not is one particular issue that's been put forward. It's not the be all and end all. And a lot of the times conservatives need to tell this story a lot more. Conservation respect for the environment, stewardship, all of these things are completely valid areas in which conservatives have typically done better than those on the left. And this is why development, especially in the oil and gas sector, has often been done with the environmental considerations front and center. Carbon tax is a simplistic way that puts really the PR battle ahead of actual science and actual policy and doesn't do that particularly well either. So the idea of the conservatives saying we're against Justin Trudeau's carbon tax, yes, that's great. I want them to be against all other iterations of that as well. Carbon tax, cap and trade, and even some of the schemes that target uh, so-called high industrial emitters, a lot of these are all just different sides of the same coin. 
And this is going to be very key. On Thursday, the Supreme Court of Canada is issuing its decision in the carbon tax challenges put forward by Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Ontario. Now, this is a particularly important case for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's going to be the highest ruling in the land on whether the carbon tax is constitutional, but it will also set the tone as to whether this is a political battle or whether it was simply a legal battle. And the reason I say that is because if the Trudeau carbon tax is struck down as unconstitutional, well, all of a sudden we revert back to having no federally mandated carbon tax. It's an area of provincial jurisdiction. So this doesn't mean that if you're in BC, your carbon tax is going away. It just means that the federal government can impose one on provinces like Ontario, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and to some extent, New Brunswick, Manitoba is a little bit iffy, but can impose one on provinces that don't want one. If the carbon tax is upheld, that does not mean it's good policy. That doesn't mean Canada is stuck with it. It means that it's constitutional and it is in the political realm for it to be stricken or upheld. And this is so key because I actually covered the Saskatchewan case, I covered the Ontario case, and I covered the Supreme Court case. And the judges, the lawyers, all of them were saying, we're not litigating climate change, we're not litigating whether this is good policy, we are solely determining whether this is constitutional. And it can be constitutional and bad policy, it could be unconstitutional and good policy, it could be unconstitutional and bad policy, it's bad policy, but I digress. It can be any of these things, the two are not at all related. So even if the Supreme Court upholds it, and I tend to be just so pessimistic about court decisions that that's how I assume it's going to go, but even if the Supreme Court upholds it, it still means that an Aaron O'Toole or some other politician can come out and say, no, we do not want this. And I'm going to hold Aaron O'Toole to what he told me at the Independent Press Gallery leadership debate, which turned into the fireside chats back in the summer, which was that under his plan, he wants to give it to provincial jurisdiction. And even if a provincial government says we want to do absolutely nothing, that would be respected. Something to keep in mind. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. This is one of these stories that is shameful and frustrating, but at the same time, you can't help but find it just completely and utterly hilarious. And you'll understand what I mean in just a couple of moments here. Comes from the Washington Post, an exclusive scoop that came out, I believe, on Saturday. Biden administration considers flying migrants to states near the Canadian border for processing. Now, the rationale behind this is that the Biden administration, or specifically the United States, States actually, has been dealing with a surge in migrants coming across the Rio Grande into the southern United States, and the rationale is that they think it's now open season. Trump is gone, the wall's not there in full, so everyone can just waltz right in, in such large numbers that the U.S. is having trouble processing them and keeping them on uh, track to their goals and targets and all of these things. And the result of this, of course, is, you know, kids in cages, although no one cares when it's not the Trump administration that is presiding over the children in cages. And now everyone is uh, just doing apologetics for the Biden immigration policies. But again, we go back to the subject matter at hand. This is such a, an overwhelming number 
that they need to get people processed elsewhere. So what do they want to do? Ship them to Customs and Border Protection outposts in border states like Montana and North Dakota and Michigan. Now, when I read this story... My thought is, well, I wonder if that's just because they know that if they just drop them off at the Canadian border, everyone will be able to walk right into Canada, and then they're no longer the U.S.'s problem. And I'm not saying that's deliberately the plan, but that's certainly my read of it. And you know what? If you're Joe Biden, that's actually pretty good policy. Well, up in Canada, they have that Justin Trudeau guy. He doesn't really care about his border. Uh, We can just threaten to deport them, drop them off at the 49th parallel, and boom, they self-deport. They're Canada's problem. We don't have to do anything with it. U.S. USA, USA, USA. Not saying that's the plan, but pretty good. The reason they want to go up there is because with the Canada-US border having been closed for pretty much a year, all of the Customs and Border Protection officials up on the American-Canadian border have considerably little to do. And that border closure was extended yet again, now going through to April, at which point it will likely be renewed again and again and again. 54 weeks into two weeks to flatten the curve, Canada-U.S. border closed, flights still restricted very heavily, two-week quarantine, hotel quarantine, all of these measures with no end in sight. And the only way you seem to be able to get into Canada or the U.S. is if you are an illegal migrant. And that's the real injustice in this. The border has been closed to people like me and my wife. If we want to just take a day trip over to Port Huron, the border has been closed to a lot of other families who have to uh, see family members on other sides of the border. The border's been closed to anyone except those who waltz in on Roxham Road, those who travel across the Rio Grande, and those ones, well, the border's open for them. And this is something that countries need to grapple with. And whether you like Trump or didn't like Trump, Trump understood the problem that immigration was posing. Stephen Harper understood the importance of orderly and safe migration, legal migration. Justin Trudeau doesn't. Justin Trudeau has never recanted laying out the red carpet for illegal immigrants by saying, Canada is your home, welcome to Canada, that infamous tweet. Never has he walked that back. And even now in the course of the pandemic, when the government, it seemed like, was going to start just turning people around, it's amazing how that hasn't actually happened the way it was promised. And I would also point out an interesting stat here. In January of this year, January of 2021, Canada admitted 26,600 new permanent residents. So 26,600 people to Canada that were new immigrants to Canada effectively. Now that is a 10% increase over the number that were admitted in January of 2020, which, as you may remember, was the before times, before lockdown. The government has dramatically increased its immigration targets with a plan to bring in about 400,000 immigrants a year. I want you to think about that for a moment. Because Canadians, as mentioned, still can't just travel across the border because Canada and the U.S. have a deal that prohibits people just going back and forth. Canadian families are, again, separated in some cases by the Canadian border. But the government's role is about increasing immigration to make up for lost time. Which just seems particularly unfair when the borders are open for one group and not for another. Now, I would say let's open up for travel. Let's allow people to travel. Let's allow people to live their lives without subjecting them to Orwellian travel measures and other restrictions. But that's not what the government is doing. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. 
Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. We've been talking a lot about Aaron O'Toole's comments in his speech last weekend at the Conservative Leadership Convention. We also, as mentioned, have the carbon tax court ruling coming down from the Supreme Court on Thursday. A lot of the subtext around energy discussions is on energy independence, and there's no denying it. This isn't just some standard little political fight like anything else we see, but there's a, a bigger agenda that's often at work here from people that are hell-bent on not just minimizing, but in some cases destroying the energy sector in Canada. And one aspect of this that hasn't gotten a lot of coverage is the battle in the Arctic region. But I want to talk about oil and gas sector development in the energy sector a little bit more broadly here. Deidre Garrick is an independent energy advocate who's done tremendous research on this that you'd think the mainstream media would be doing, but certainly aren't. She joins me now. Deidre, thanks for coming on. Good to talk to you. Well, thank you for having me, Andrew. Now, I've had the opportunity to hear you speak about, about some of your work a, a couple of months back, and I, I said I wanted to get you on the show because you're delving into things that, as I mentioned, a lot of people simply aren't. What got you looking into this, first off? Well, actually, it was a, a friend who had mentioned to me that they have some evidence to suggest that perhaps there is some sort of concerted effort happening in the Arctic to... Um, constrain or just choke off shipping in the Arctic altogether, which um, had sort of come out as a result of uh, Bill C-48, the West Coast tanker ban. And so uh, over a number of months, I sort of started uh, delving into things, just really uh, doing simple Google search searches. So you're absolutely right. I mean, this is something any uh, media outlet could have found. Um, and so once I started to sort of peel back the layers of the onion, then I could start to see that there really was, um, you know, very material funding going to some well-known uh, ENGO groups. I, I could see that, yes, there is potentially something here. Um, they're, they're quite sophisticated in that they're not always um, entirely transparent about what their plans are. But uh, once I discovered that, um, the World Wildlife Fund had received um, about $900,000 US in funding from the Switzerland-based Oak Foundation uh, with the express purpose of trying to put in regulations to constrain shipping and to stop development in the Arctic. I knew that there was a story here. There was something more going on than what people might see. Um, and I think, as we all know, with the egress constraints, um, pipeline constraints going east and west, uh, many people in the oil and gas sector and, and energy sector, you know, it could be transmission lines, etc., are looking at different options, including the Arctic. So the Port of Churchill and uh, Port Nelson have been on the radar for a number of years. Um, and so that was the other reason I said, well, you know, if there is an effort to constrain shipping out of the Arctic, maybe this just isn't an option that we have. And um, it appears that there, there could be something here. And so I'm trying to sort of understand what is happening up there. One thing we saw, this is going back to, I think, early 2020 with Tech Frontier, is, is that a lot of companies just don't want to deal with political fights. They want to come. They're, they're, they're in the building industry. They're not in the politics industry. So the resistance you get from activist groups, well-funded activist groups, as you note, uh, can actually have an effect if companies are finding that they're having to spend all their time on lobbying and, and political capital and not actually putting things in the ground. 
Absolutely. I think there is a real misconception out there that uh, oil and gas industry, the oil and gas industry, you know, big oil as it's often termed, uh, spends millions and millions of dollars uh, lobbying and fighting to just sort of develop freely and, and destroy the environment. And, and that's just simply not true. We know that uh, ENGOs have received millions of dollars in funding with the express purpose of trying to stop development. Oil and gas companies are doing what they can to run their business, to develop their business. And so uh, you're right, lobbying and activism uh, advocacy is not a, a strength of the industry. Um, I always say the industry has never had to advertise to sell its products. So we've never had to be advocates and, and try to explain why that product is valuable. And so I think that's why the messaging maybe has gotten away and, and why there has been such successful pushback. And one point as well, just on that dollar value. So this is just one particular grant that you've mentioned, the World Wildlife Fund getting $881,000. In a lot of cases, that's more than is going towards promoting these projects. Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, I'm an independent energy advocate. I've I've done my writing, my research, uh, my presenting all on my own time and dime. I haven't been paid Um, And and there's many of us uh, like me out there just trying to educate and get the message out. So let me ask then about the Arctic specifically, because we often hear so much of the discourse around a lot of the more lower Canada, well, not not in the sense of Quebec, but lower Canada in the sense of geographically uh, projects, you know, Keystone XL, Enbridge, Trans Mountain. What's happening in the Arctic? Well, there are two groups right now. Um, One of them is uh, called the Peacemaker Pipeline Project, which is led by the First People's Pipeline. Uh, They received $500,000 in funding from the Saskatchewan government in September of last year. And and that's to look at um, the feasibility of building an energy corridor to to the uh, port of Churchill. Now, um, there's also another group called the Nistanon Group that is looking at building an energy corridor of um, pipelines, transmission lines, as well as rail to Port Nelson. Um, so uh, we know that there, there is an active interest in, uh, in the energy sector in general, not just oil and gas, but energy, to, to find some egress options to, to go up to the Arctic. Uh, However, we can see through what's publicly disclosed on the NGO's websites that they are actively looking to uh, constrain shipping, stop any sort of development, particularly oil and gas. That's, they're very, very transparent about wanting to stop oil and gas development. Um, And they also want to get rid of all diesel and heating oil use in the Arctic and replace it with renewables. for the most part, wind and solar are uh, listed as the two main sources, but we do know that they are trying to uh, replace uh, any survey uh, diesel or heating oil um, uh, stoves or heating sources with mm-hmm. uh, biomass. Now, uh, the other thing is we know that they are actively working with the government to try and implement uh, marine protected areas, marine refuges, uh, create culturally significant marine areas, um, anything that will end up uh, constraining shipping, if not completely choking it off altogether. Um, 
there is a, a map that I found online uh, that has the entire um, Hudson Strait uh, listed as a culturally significant marine area. And so, you know, that could potentially mean no shipping there, no, no, uh, no traffic of any sort, meaning that if you have any sort of an energy corridor to Churchill or Port Nelson, you can't get in or out. So it, it really renders all of that work futile. One thing that I, I would ask about here, because a lot of the language around this is, is couched in terms of very good sounding things, you know, significant marine areas, marine refuge, marine protected areas. No one wants to think of destroying wildlife and, and natural habitats in pursuit of, of money. What's the response to that? Well, honestly, the oil and gas sector in particular has been known. It's, it's very we're very transparent about it. We do spend a lot on environmental protection. I think there is a huge misunderstanding uh, that you know the oil and gas sector just goes in and, and destroys the environment and, and just doesn't care, gets what it wants and it, it just walks away. And that's just simply not true. Um, in Canada, there's a lot of really strict regulations, even though it's regulated by province. Um, you know, our three main oil and gas producing provinces, BC, Alberta, and Saskatchewan, do have very stringent environmental regulations. And so, um, I, you know, I, I think it's just a, a misconception that we don't care. Um, you know, we, we uh, have tankers that are very sophisticated, that prevent spills and so I think to go out and say that you know we have to cut all of this off is is really I think misguided and, and misinforming the public in general. And one point as well to, to bring it into the realm of, of federal politics is that the federal government, which we know has has never met a regulation on the energy sector it didn't like, has set a, a target, which again, does not get a lot of coverage at all as far as how much of Canada's water it wants to preserve and protect. Again, sounds noble on the surface, but they want to increase that. And when you talk about that map, which we, we put up on the screen, that will only shrink the areas in which this sector can work. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I want to be very clear. I support conservation. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I even support a uh, diverse energy mix where it makes sense. So this isn't about me just being very like pro-development with no consequences. Um, and I think that I'm fairly representative of the oil and gas sector in general, but that's not, uh, that's not what I want. And so um, yes, I think there are very legitimate reasons to uh, put certain uh, regulations and conservation areas in place. Um, however, I, I agree with you. When we start to just uh, create these ginormous uh, conservation areas, then it really does impact development. And that impacts all Canadians. Um, you know, if indeed there is no development allowed up in the Arctic, that really does impact the ability for Indigenous communities to uh, to get jobs and to to prosper, and, and I think that that is part of the conversation that is left out um, when these groups go up and and try to um, you know get rid of oil and gas development and uh, implement you know renewables and other things like that. 
Well, that's actually a tremendously important point, because in the media, the discourse around this is that you've got oil and gas sector versus indigenous communities, because you do have a few indigenous communities, especially out in British Columbia, that are very much uh, devoted against these sorts of projects. But the indigenous communities where the projects are taking place almost exclusively are supporting them. And that seems to be true in the north as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that there have been some very uh, courageous, vocal Indigenous leaders who have spoken up in support to try to say, look, there is another side to this story. Um, you might have seen uh, that uh, there was a, a leader that just spoke out against um, Jane Fonda protesting Line 3 and the oil sands, uh, Stephen Buffalo from the uh, Indian Resource Council. He's yes, been yeah, he's, a he's really fantastic. strong advocate. Um, so we are seeing that, but I, I think those voices are not being heard enough. They're not being given the platform to present a different side to this. And I think that's a, a disservice to the conversation in general. Deidre Garrick is an energy advocate talking about the stories that more people should. So happy to play my small part by talking about them with her. Deidre, thank you so much for coming on. Great to speak with you. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. I really appreciate this. It's amazing how many of these stories just are not told, and you have to wonder what the reason for that is. In some cases, people in the mainstream media, they are going to go after the most vocal, and the most vocal are the people that are hell-bent on destroying the energy sector. When you have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars that are devoted to fighting against development, that side has public relations people, that side has marketing, that side is in your face, and people like Deidre simply aren't. But Stephen Buffalo, here's a guy who's talked about the importance of standing up for indigenous jobs, indigenous self-government, indigenous self-sustenance as far as the economic potential that these projects bring these communities, and gets very little coverage in the mainstream media. And I think shame on the media for not wanting to talk about the success story that is Canada's energy sector. The only time it fails are when the government is stomping on it with its boot. We've got to wrap things up, but again, my thanks to Deidre Garrick and all of you for tuning into the show. We'll talk to you in a couple days time with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you. God bless and good day. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton show. Support the program by donating to true North at www.tnc.news.